Well, I do encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. We are returning to our study of the Gospel of John this morning. We're going to be at it for the next several months. Uh, There are study guides available at the Connect Desk in the lobby this first round. Uh, you'll notice just has five weeks in it, but all of it in chapter 12. So we're going to be at the, the Gospel of John, the second half of the Gospel of John, for quite some time. Uh, you can basically divide the Gospel of John into two halves. The first 11 chapters that we covered last year essentially deal with the, for, with the three years of Jesus' public ministry, and that culminates or climaxes in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, everything from chapter 12 forward to the end of the gospel deals with really the final week of Jesus' life and then his resurrection. So the action slows down to a considerable degree. And actually, all four gospels do this. All of them devote a disproportionate amount of time to the final week of Jesus' life. And that should remind us or instruct us that while we might want to think that it's Jesus' teaching or Jesus' miracles or Jesus' compassion or his ethics, that is most compelling. It's actually the death and resurrection of Jesus that is the center point of the Christian faith. Everything is centered on that. So we come today to a familiar story in John chapter 12. And before I read it, let me just sort of set this up for you by telling you that a few weeks back, On a Sunday afternoon, I was at home and I was watching the PGA Tour Championship. Um, It's kind of like the Super Bowl for golf. So you know it's going to be a great message when it starts starts off with a golf illustration, right? But I was sitting there watching this and and the the PGA has this uh, interesting format for playoffs. It's a three-week format. The first week, it's the top 125 players in the world who tee off. And after that weekend, then the next weekend, the second week, they've whittled it down to the top 70 players. And on the final weekend, they've got it down to just the top 30 players. That's the only people who play on that weekend. Now, I've never been able to get any of my kids to actually watch golf with me, except Rachel. She's sort of my golf buddy. But on this day... Uh, Ben happened to watch into the room while I was, or walk into the room while I was watching. He's been hitting the the driving range a little bit, so he was almost interested. And then I asked him, well, how much money do you think the winner of this tournament will get? What will he get for winning this tournament? Now, his, because I had asked the question, he he figured it's probably a pretty large sum, and his first guess was a million dollars. Does he get a million dollars? Nope. Two million dollars. $3 million, $5 million. Nope. The winner got $18 million. Now, if you don't follow golf, you will puzzle to think, how could that possibly be worth worth $18 million to win a golf tournament? I follow golf, and I have no idea how it can possibly be worth $18 million to win a single golf tournament. But it is worth it. Because TV networks and advertisers pay far more than that, or they're willing to pay far more than that, if schlubs like me will sit and watch it on a weekend. And the sheer amount of money that's on the line means that even casual fans will tune in. Who's going to win the $18 million? And that event just got me thinking a little bit, how do you properly assess the worth 
or the value of anything. What determines that the winner should get $18 million and not, say, $13 million or $7 million? What is it that makes something worth what it is? Well, in reality, we actually have no idea what makes something worth what it is. I've been reading this book entitled Priceless, and it explores why things cost what they do. The simple answer to that question is that it's completely arbitrary. Yes, there are manufacturing costs and supply and demand factors, but the primary thing that influences the price of everything is psychology. One example from the book comes from the entertainment industry. A Broadway producer revealed that they used to try to sell orchestra and mezzanine tickets to a Broadway show for like $130. And they had a hard time selling them. This producer came along and said, you know what? We ought to charge $480 for those tickets. And suddenly, they were the hottest ticket in town. See, when they raised the prices of those same tickets, there was actually no change in the actual value of the seats or the experience of the show. It had everything to do with perception. You get what you pay for is what we all understand. And because those seats are priced higher, they must be really, really good. That's the thought process that takes place in the minds of people all the time as they make purchases, as they try to assess the value of something. So how do we rightly assess the value of anything? Well, it's a difficult question to answer. It's a question you've had to answer if you've ever bought a house. Home prices fluctuate depending on the market, but what a house costs one day can be dramatically different than what it costs, say, three months later or six months later, up or down. And the answer to that question is, what's the house worth, is usually, what, what's it worth to you? How do you value it? And that's true when it comes to houses and tickets to a Broadway show. But what about when it comes to spiritual things? How do we properly value spiritual things? How do we assess their worth? How do we assess how much our relationship with Jesus is worth? How would you even go about putting a price on that? Well, the passage we're looking at today has something to say about that. We're in John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. But just before we get there, I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading at 11, chapter 11, 55, and then go all the way to chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Well, this is a fascinating passage for lots of reasons, but I'm just going to make two primary observations from it. The first one is that you cannot value Jesus too highly. That is the truth that is at the heart of this story. Now, verse 1 gives us the background. Six days before the Passover, therefore, Jesus came to, to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Again, this is where we left off the last time we were in the Gospel of John. In John's account, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the seventh and decisive sign that Jesus performed. So back in chapter 2, Jesus performed his first sign when he changed water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed the official son who was at the point of death. That was his second sign. John 5 records Jesus healing a man who had been in a paralyzed condition for 38 years. In John chapter 6, there are two signs. First, he feeds 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus walks on water. John 9 tells us about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. And then the seventh sign was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It was Jesus' greatest sign. And it was that event that triggered the events of this chapter. So verse 2 says... So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So this dinner was put on as a way to honor Jesus. It was a way for Mary and Martha and Lazarus to express their gratitude for what Jesus had done. This was their way of saying thanks. And everyone is in their proper place, right? Martha is prepping the food and serving as she usually does. Lazarus is conversing with Jesus, he's at the table, and then there's Mary. And verse 3 says this, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Most of us have heard this story before. And because of that, we don't experience the full shock of it. I'm not sure we really appreciate the scandal of what Mary did. If TMZ had been around in the first century, this would have been front page news, right? This would have been on their website. There were two types of costs to Mary's actions. We'll get to the financial cost in a minute. But we shouldn't overlook the social cost of what she did. In her efforts to express gratitude to Jesus, Mary broke all sorts of societal norms. Jesus and his disciples are reclining at the table. Now, when it says that they're at the table or reclining at the table, it's different from the picture that we might have. Somewhere along the way, we've all seen Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper 
right? They're, they did not sit at tables like that in the first century. There would have been a low table in the center of the room, and they would have been basically leaning on their elbows, kind of fanned out around their table, their feet pointed away from the table. And Mary enters, and she kind of sneaks around the back to the feet of Jesus. She lets down her hair. She pours oil on his feet and on his head, according to the other Gospels. And this would have been scandalous. In the ancient world, for a woman to let her hair down was considered to be a sign of loose morals. Now, Mary's brother has been raised from the dead. She's not worried about what other people might think of her. All she wants to do is express her gratitude to Jesus. And it's probably good for us to be reminded of this from time to time. I mean, sometimes we are so worried about what other people might think about us that we can't even raise our hands in worship. Right now, I'm not suggesting that is the true sign of authentic worship or anything like that. But sometimes we are just so stoic about our devotion to Jesus. When was the last time you just got on your knees and said, thank you, Jesus? When was the last time you expressed your gratitude to Jesus in front of other people? What if they thought you were weird? I mean, even if you love Jesus, you can't go around saying things like that, right? You don't want to appear fanatical. I like the observation Kevin DeYoung made when he said this. He said, one commentator says, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence. But it has a problem with too much religion. You can be any kind of religious you want as long as you're not overly religious. You can believe Jesus is your God so long as you don't believe he is the God. You can come home from school a little more serious about Christianity so long as this Jesus has not become your all-consuming passion in life. See, Mary didn't have that kind of respectable religion. She's going to worship Jesus no matter what the neighbors might think. She has no problem coming in, letting down her hair, and anointing the feet of Jesus. But Mary's actions were not just socially risky. What's highlighted here is the cost of her gift. It says she took a pound, a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't know a lot about perfume, but a pound sounds like a lot to me. And this wasn't something she bought at the Clinique counter. This is probably a family heirloom that was passed down through the generations. Really valuable possession. In Mark's gospel, he tells us that the ointment was in an alabaster jar and that Mary broke the jar open when she anointed Jesus. So I did a little bit of internet sleuthing on expensive perfumes. I'm getting all sorts of ads now, which is great. Our anniversary is coming up, Ilona, so... Who knows? The world's second most expensive bottle of perfume is DKNY's Golden Delicious. 
According to Business Insider reports, the luxurious apple-shaped bottle is adorned with 2,909 precious stones sourced from all over the world, including 183 yellow sapphires, 2,700 white diamonds, a 7.18-carat oval Cabacon sapphire from Sri Lanka, 15 bright pink diamonds from Australia, four rose-cut diamonds, a 1.7-carat turquoise Parabia, whatever that is, from Brazil, 3.07 carat oval ruby, a 4.03 carat pear-shaped rose-cut diamond, and a 2.43 carat flawless canary yellow diamond, which embellishes the cap. The stones were hand-placed to mimic the New York City skyline, and the process took nearly 1,500 hours to complete. Its price is around $1 million, if you're interested. Wait, am I buying the perfume or the bottle? Now, I haven't even begun to tell you about the fact that DKNY Golden Delicious celebrates luxury and splendor with its rich, accentuated aromas of juicy Golden Delicious apple, accompanied by orange blossom and mirabelle plum. An opulent floral heart offers a bouquet of white roses surrounded by Casablanca lilies, lily of the valley and vanilla orchid, while base caresses notes of musk, followed by a sensual woody trail of sandalwood antique. Any of you wearing that this morning? Now, it's Judas who helps us understand just how financially irresponsible Mary was being at this point. Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii And given to the poor. In case you're not up on your biblical currency, a denarius was the going rate for a day laborer. So if you worked a day, you would be given a denarius. The average Israelite would work 300 days a year when you factored in Sabbaths and other holidays. So in the course of a year, you would make about 300 denarii. Mary takes the equivalent of a year's worth of wages and she dumps the whole thing out on the feet of Jesus. It seems a bit excessive, doesn't it? I mean, $50,000? A year's worth of wages? And Judas wasn't alone in his assessment of this. When we read the same account in Matthew and Mark, we read this. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Again, we would have been right there with them. I know I would have been because I'm cheap. So there are two kinds of table syrup in the world, right? You can get the Costco maple syrup, that's $16 a bottle. Or you can get the Aunt Jemima bottle, that's like $3. And I remember when our kids were younger, and we would sometimes have people over for brunch with their kids, we had very clear rules. The Costco maple syrup was like liquid gold, I mean, I wasn't about to watch it go to waste on a six-year-old's plate who thought it would be neat to make his pancakes swim in a pool of it. They got the Aunt Jemima. Because kids don't get the whole just a dab will do you thing. And Mary didn't get it either. She poured the whole thing out to anoint Jesus. 
sometimes we're a little stingy in our worship. John tells us that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Did she need to dump the whole thing out? Did she need to break the bottle? I mean, couldn't she have held back just a little? There are all sorts of practical and prudent reasons we could come up with why Mary shouldn't have been so lavish. Now, Judas had one of those reasons. Couldn't this have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, verse 6 gives us a little bit more information about why Judas said what he did. It says he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So his righteous indignation over the plight of the poor was a bit of a smokescreen. Judas wasn't the first person to behave like this. He certainly wasn't the last. Obviously, we ought to be concerned about the poor, But sometimes that's just the type of phrase that gets thrown around to make ourselves feel better. I mean, why do we need a church building? Why not just build a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter? Is the worship of Jesus that important? But what about Judas's actual objection? I mean, isn't there some validity to it? Is it really a good use of resources to spend a year's worth of wages on a bottle of perfume as a way to honor Jesus? Well, there are two reasons we can confidently, confidently answer yes to that question. Yes, it was a good use of her resources. The first reason is the way Mary's actions have been memorialized. John says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And I think John is saying more than just that the house smelled really nice for some time afterwards. I think it's his way of saying that that her action had significance beyond just the thing that she did. The other gospel writers say it like this. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's a staggering statement that Jesus makes. And the fact that we are talking about it today is a fulfillment of that. But the other reason we can confidently say that her use of this resource in this way was worth it is because of Jesus' own assessment of what she did. And this is something we we really can't afford to miss. Listen again to verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There's a lot in there. Jesus said that she did it as a kind of preparation for his burial. That is some pretty serious foreshadowing. But again, we might wonder, does it really make sense to spend all those resources on someone who is close to dying? And think about what Jesus says here. He says, yes, essentially, he says, yes, this was a lavish gift, but I'm worth it. 
Now, if this were a one-off, if this were the only time that Jesus said something like this, we might wonder, well, you know what? What Jesus said must have somehow got lost in translation. He can't possibly have meant that. But read through the Gospels and you will find Jesus saying stuff like this all the time. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Commenting on Jesus' words here in John 12, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said this. He said, were a mere mortal to claim such priority, he would be very ill or unspeakably arrogant. See, that's the thing. What Jesus is saying here is, I'm worth it, and he is. So what are we to make of what Mary did here? Was it worth it? I think Mary is almost the personification of the two parables Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. Two short parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, Mary has found the pearl of great price and no expense is too lavish to obtain it, to keep it. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. He says, you cannot love Jesus too much. You cannot follow him too closely. You cannot adore him too intensely. Every other man, woman, or child on the planet, dead or alive, will become an idol for you, but not this one. You cannot devote yourself to him too fully and too completely. As I put it in the outline, you cannot value Jesus too highly. The flip side of that is also true. So the second main thing we see in this passage is that it is a costly mistake to undervalue Jesus. It's said of the cynic that he knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing. That's what we see with Judas in this passage. He knows the cost of the perfume. He's calculated it out. It's worth 300 denarii but he doesn't understand the value of what Mary did at all. There's a clear contrast that we're supposed to see in this passage between Mary and Judas. Judas had his own assessment of how much Jesus was worth. Now, we don't know exactly when he broke bad, so to speak, but at some point, Judas's association with Jesus was about what he could get out of it. And what he took out of it at this point was some of the money from the offering that would come in. He would help himself to it. Now, despite the fact that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, dark clouds were beginning to hang over his ministry. The religious leaders were ratcheting up their opposition to him. A plot was forming, and Judas was no dummy. He could see this coming. He could see that his extra source of income was about to dry up. So what did he do? Well, when you read this same account in the Gospel of Matthew, you you discover that it was immediately on the heels of this event 
that Judas makes his deal to betray Jesus. So Matthew 26, 13 says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then verses 14 to 16 say, When one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the 30 pieces of silver would have been 30 silver coins, 30 denarii. We don't need to read anything symbolic into those numbers, but it's interesting that Judas betrays Jesus for a tenth of what Mary offered in worship. Mary thought Jesus was so valuable, she was willing to lavish a priceless treasure on him. Judas thought he was worth so little, he was willing to turn him over for 30 silver coins. Judas was cold and calculating, but he made a bad bargain. Matthew records the end of Judas' story like this. It says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that, that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. That's the tragedy of this. What good is it if a man gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Now, people do this all the time. We are worshipers by nature. And if we do not worship Jesus, we will worship something that is far less valuable. So Judas made a bad bargain, but it's not just the lure of riches that might cause us to do that. I began reading at the end of chapter 11 and went as far as verse 11 of chapter 12 because those two paragraphs are like bookends to this story. And they tell us about the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The last, cha- last verse of chapter 11 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And then verse 11 says, or verses 10 and 11 say, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Going away from who? Going away from the religious leaders. So why were they so upset? Well, whereas Judas worshipped possessions... The religious leaders worshipped position. And I would say that this is every bit as much a threat to our spiritual life as money and possessions can be. The religious leaders loved their positions. They loved the recognition they got for their piety. Matthew 23 contains a lengthy discourse from Jesus, where he basically eviscerates the religious leaders of his day. And part of what he says is this, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries long and their fringes long, or broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. 
In short, they loved their position and the prestige that came with. Some of our evangelical elites would do well to pay heed to this. It's a danger. But the truth is, any one of us is susceptible to valuing the approval of man above the approval of God. Now, Mary might not have had the same kind of social standing that the religious leaders had, but she was willing to sacrifice all of it to rightly honor Jesus. And Jesus addressed our obsession with having a good reputation on several occasions. In John chapter 5, he said this, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Or later here in John 12, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the, the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's a danger. The Apostle Paul would later say something similar. He said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, those things are often mutually exclusive. It is a costly mistake to undervalue Jesus. It is costly to think that accumulating more stuff is more valuable than a right relationship with Jesus. It is a costly mistake to think that maintaining your position, your reputation is more important than offering your worship to Jesus. That the approval of man is worth more in your eyes than the approval of God. So I think it's fitting to conclude today with two questions. Two questions for us just to think about. The first one is, what matters most to you? What is the thing that you treasure above all else? Is it your home, your wealth, your health, your position, your possessions? Are you like the merchant in search of fine pearls who has found the one that's worth, that's more valuable than all others, and you are willing to sacrifice all to buy it? Can you say with the hymn writer, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than worldly applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. Yes, I'd rather be true to his holy name. The what is most valuable to you? Second question worth reflecting on is what kind of legacy do you want to leave? Now Mary and Judas both left legacies. You can see the difference between them in something as simple as the way parents name their children. You've probably met lots of Marys along the way, but very few Judases, if any. See, Mary's legacy as the one, is as the one who sacrificed all to worship Jesus. Judas' legacy is, the, is as the one who took a small payment to betray Jesus. Now, these two questions are related. 
Because the thing that you treasure most, the thing that you value most, is what most people will remember about you. And I would just say this to parents, the best thing you can leave for your kids is not a massive inheritance, but a godly legacy. I've told my kids that probably they'll inherit a bunch of books, right? I love what Proverbs 20 verse 7 says. It says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. That's the kind of legacy you want to live, something that's a blessing to your children. So let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. He is the pearl of great great price. He is the treasure that was hidden in the field. And Lord, in our joy, we want to sell all that we have. And by that, Lord, we pray you would help us to discern what is truly important in life, what is the thing of greatest value, that we would not settle for something that is less than Jesus. And God, we pray you would help us, like Mary, to leave something behind that speaks of our devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.